Okay, today, um, I feel, feel strongly led to cast vision. We're coming off of two crazy years, uh, and, and in this time of change, this world of change, uh, the church has changed. And I'm not just talking about even Crossroads or even uh, the local church expression in Grand Rapids or even the church uh, in, our, in our nation. Um, I'm talking the church worldwide because every time I talk to a pastor, and I've had many conversations uh, with pastors uh, locally, I've had conversations with pastors uh, around our country, and I've also had conversations uh, with pastors all over the world. And uh, there's there's... A pretty consistent thread to these conversations when you talk about the church, which pretty much boils down to uh, the fact that the church is having an identity crisis. Uh, the church right now is really struggling to know who or what it is and, 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 and why does the church exist. And, and at the same time, the church is dealing with this in many ways. Um, the church is just being dragged through the mud as well. And so when you have an identity crisis, you, you need to listen to God. You, you, you need to hear what God has to say. And one thing that we absolutely know here at Crossroads uh, is that the church itself is not a human invention. This is not a human idea. Uh, the church through and through is God's idea. Christ birthed the church. Christ died for the church, and Christ launched the church, and Christ's intention for the church is massive purpose is attached to the church. And uh, he's also made it very clear to us through his scripture of, of what the church is. And so uh, this summer, our staff has been doing a lot of soul searching together. Um, We've been really looking at crossroads. Uh, we've been asking the hard questions. Uh, who are we? What are we doing here? Does all of this align uh, with Jesus and what he says about the church and his vision for the church? Um, and, and we, through this process, landed on several things. But one of the first things that we landed on to root all of this in the text was a theme Text And this isn't just a theme text for this year, but this is uh, a theme text for Crossroads. It's a text that will act as our blueprint. It's a text that will give us our marching orders. And so let's go to that text right now, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I would begin reading at verse 4. As you come to him, Christ, the living stone. And by the way, this whole text is about a stone. Uh, stone in, in, in the Hebrew mindset is another word or metaphor for temple, for God's temple, for God's house. So as you come to him, the living temple... The living house, rejected by, 
by humans, but chosen by God, precious to God, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone, I lay a temple in Zion. Zion is the spiritual name for Jerusalem. A precious, a chosen and precious cornerstone. In this text in the Old Testament, it reads, And the one who trusts it, but here Peter says, The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who, you, who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But not you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word. You can be seated. So everything that, that we're going for as a church, everything that we're going to fight for, I think is right here in this text particularly uh, verses 9 and 10. Let me just start with this. The church is not a building. (laughs) The church is not a Sunday morning service. The church is not a bunch of programs. The church, first and foremost, is a people. And I know this sounds so basic, but forgetting the basics is the first step into a slow death for a church. In fact, this word uh, for people in verse 9 is the word uh, genos, the Greek word genos, uh, from which we get the word genes and, and words like genealogy. Uh, the most literal meaning of the word genos is, is family. <laughs> and you just think about what family is supposed to be. Family is supposed to be uh, the place where you're known and, and where you're loved and the place where you belong and all of this without condition. Family is the place where you get your name. Your, your family names you. Uh, family is the place where you get so much of 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 your identity, uh, and, and it's the place where we're called to live up to, to our name. I remember saying that to uh, my kids a lot of times when they were younger. Remember, you're of Insulcoma, and you got to live into that. And family, too. I mean, it, it, it's supposed to be that place, that, that, that safe place where we can just put our feet up, uh, let our hair down, uh, where we can share and celebrate um, the, the greatest joys in our life, um, and, and also the greatest hurts and, and the struggles 
uh, where they're shared and they're shouldered by people who love us. That's family. And that's what we are as a church. First and foremost, we are a people. We are a family. And I'm not even just talking about crossroads now. I have some of the most profound experiences, uh, when, when, especially when I go to Israel. I love these moments um, because I really do hike people hard sometimes where they think they're going to die. But when they get to the end of that, um, a lot of times they're in, in this place of, of desperation where, where they've encountered God. And uh, a lot of times that just leads to worship and praise. And um, I, we've had times there where we'll, we'll, as a group we'll, we'll be just great as thy faithfulness will we'll, we'll come out. And I've had, had it where a group from China is passing by. And we're singing, great is our faithfulness, and they just get around us and in their own language sing the same song. And there's hugs, and you're just like, we're family. And my Jewish guide, he's always scratching his head like, how do you know these people? (laughs) I'm like, we're Christians. We're family. And this church is going to fight for this. Knowing that sometimes buildings and services and programs can make us forget that. In fact, we are in constant danger of always just becoming a crowd, an event, a show, a place where people walk in as strangers and they leave as strangers, and no one really cares. Now listen, we, we, we value our Sunday morning gather, gathering. I mean, we, we value this time when, when we can come together, when we can worship God, because in our minds, it anticipates Revelation 5. And if you know Revelation 5, that day is coming when Christians throughout All the generations from every culture, every language, every family on the face of the earth will be gathered around the throne, worshiping the Lamb Christ. So this is almost like a dress rehearsal for that. It's whetting our appetite for that. And this is our locker room, as as we like to call it sometimes. This This is where we come together, where we get God's heart, where we hear God's word, where God can shape us and mold us into the kind of people he wants us to be, where we can gather in so we can go out. But if this Sunday morning defines us, it will work against the very thing the church is supposed to be. We aren't a service. We aren't a program. The church isn't confined to these four walls. We are a people. We are a genos. We are a family. And that's why we use words uh, uh, around here a lot like 90-10. What we're trying to say with 90-10 is 90% of who we are as a church, as a people, has to happen outside these walls, outside of a Sunday morning. And so we're going to fight for this. We're going to scratch and claw. We're going to to be gritty in this. 
We're going to fight every day for, for what God has purposed the church to be, for, for, for what Christ died for, that the church is a, a people, a family. And I need everybody who considers themselves a part of this church, this people, this family. I need you to own this. I need you to take this upon yourself, to not be a stranger, to take it upon yourself, to step into a place outside of a Sunday morning, into, into a smaller setting. We have a whole plethora of those kinds of places, places where, where, where you can be known and you can know others, where you're loved, where you can love others, where you gather with a smaller group of people who are pointing each other to Christ and who are living their lives on mission for him. We got to go for this. Why? Because as a church, we are a people. We're not just a people. We're chosen people. I don't know how that hits you, but God picked us. God looked at us and said, "I want them." And, and, and this whole idea of of God actually choosing a people—it's not a new idea. In fact, it's what. The whole Old Testament is about, and, and I think a lot of this really uh, comes to fruition in, in Exodus 19, when God says to Israel, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and how I brought you out of that and I brought you to myself. Now, Israel, if you obey me fully and keep my co- covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession, although... The whole earth is mine. And when you know the context in which God says this to Israel, uh, it's right after God brings Israel out of slavery, and then he leads Israel to this mountain. And now at this mountain, uh, he says these words. He says, you, Israel, are my treasured possession. Treasured possession. I mean, oh, this is incredible. This is a technical term in the ancient world. It's, it, it's the Hebrew word segulah. It's, it's what a groom gave to uh, his bride on, on his wedding day. Uh, what he would do is he would look at all, all the things that he owned, all the things that he possessed, and he would pick the one that, that was most prized, most treasured, and on his wedding day, he would give that to his bride. That was his segulah. To say to her in giving his segulah to her, you now are my segulah. You're the one who's most precious to me. And listen to God, to Israel. Though the whole universe is mine, I own it all. Israel, you are my segula. And here's where you have to ask, what's going on here? When you keep reading Exodus 19, God instructs Israel. He says, Israel, I want for the next three days for you to prepare yourself like a bride, and then I want you to approach my holy mountain. And I'll tell you what's going on here. The God of the universe just got down on one knee and proposed to Israel. Because as Israel three days later approached Mount Mount Sinai like a bride, God came down that mountain in all of his glory. The earth shook, thunder, lightning, fire. His glory was seen. They beheld him. They beheld his glory. 
And on this day, a covenant of marriage was established between God and Israel. Israel became God's partner. And then you have to ask, to what end? And God spells it out. He says, now, if you obey me fully, you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my segula. Although the whole earth is mine, I own it all. You will be, my, be for me a, king, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. This is almost reading word for word what Peter just said to the church. And I want you to see what Peter did in our text for today. Peter has the audacity to apply Exodus 19 to us, the church. Because we too, like Israel, we've been called out of darkness. Called out is... Is, is what the word church in Greek means. Ecclesia means the called out ones. We've been called out of darkness, but we haven't just been called out of something. We've been called into something. We are called into, says Peter, his wonderful light. We've been, we've been brought into his glory. In other words, that same glory that came down on Sinai, the infinite all-powerful, all-beautiful presence of God, his glory. It now lives in us. And I think this is Peter's main point of, of, of this whole chapter. I mean, it already starts in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when Peter is using words like uh, stones or spiritual house or priesthood and sacrifices, what he's talking about is a temple. Now, we don't live in a world of temples anymore. But temples in, 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 in Jesus' world, in Peter's world, I mean, they were, they were as common as gas stations. They, they, they were everywhere. And to the ancient, it, it was inconceivable for there to be a God and for that God to not have a temple. Every God had a temple. And the temple then wasn't so much uh, a place of worship. Uh, the temple was more just seen as, as the place where, where the God lived, where, where the glory of that God was made manifest. Now, I find this amazing. I mean, this, this is kind of a side thought, but just think through, through much of the story how, how God chose to live in a temple uh, because God uh, is contextual. He, he contextualizes uh, himself and his, his message and what he's about. And he, he even contextualizes himself to the point where, at a part in the story, he becomes a temple. Jesus is a walking temple. And, and, and it doesn't even stop there because now Peter is saying, together we are being built into God's house, that we are the temple. God lives. His glory his presence, it's in us. 
Not you. Us. I know some of you are thinking right now, well, doesn't the Bible say that when we believe in God, that God comes to live into my heart and that this Holy Spirit lives in me? And, and, and listen, while, while I don't want to take that completely off the table, I think you'd be shocked at how little this concept is in the Bible. In fact, the only reason why, why, why God lives in the individual stones is because the stones are in God's house. And God's house is not stone upon stone or brick upon brick, but person upon person. This is why Paul, when he, he says, too, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the you there is not singular, it's plural, it's you all. You collectively, you together, you as the family of God, form God's house. Now I want us to consider the implications of this. If you want to find God, if you want to experience God, if you want to know God, if, if you want to see God high and lifted up, if you want to know the power of God, then stop isolating yourself as a stone that's disconnected from God's house. You must be a stone in God's house. His glory lives in us. His glory will be shown to the world through us. If you want to know the whole massive purpose behind God choosing us, I, I think it's right here. That we as, 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 as a people, as a family, are the actual place for God's glory. We are the place where his awesome, raw presence dwells. He inhabits us. And this means that the God of the universe right now, he wants to make himself known to the world through us. He wants his glory to be revealed through us. And think right now how much our world needs God. Peter goes on and he says, you're a royal priesthood. Again, in the ancient world, uh, every god not only had its temple, but every temple had its priests. This is why uh, the Romans called the Christians atheists, because uh, they didn't have a temple. They didn't have priests. They didn't have sacrifices. But I think if you'd ask these early Christians, like, well, why, why does your religion not have temple priests and sacrifices? I think they would say, well, no, we do have temple, priest, and sacrifice. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our priest, and, and Jesus is our sacrifice. And they, I think they would even go further. Uh, and, and now Jesus handed the baton to us, and we are now the sacrifice, right? Our, our, our bodies um, are, are to be living sacrifices, and we collectively are God's house. We're, we're living stones that are being built into his temple, and, and we are all priests. We, we are a kingdom of priests, And I want us to feel this this morning. Every single 
Christ follower, is a priest. This whole notion of, uh, of there being this professional class of priests or, or pastors is made obsolete by our New Testament. And I don't mind when people come up to me and call me Pastor Rod because it reminds me of, of, of what I am and my calling in my life. But you better also uh, be ready for me to call you Pastor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, we're getting in the locker room again, aren't we? Now listen, I know for some of you, priest can be an intimidating word, but, but let me just spell out what a priest was in the ancient world. Uh, a priest in the ancient world had a twofold function or a twofold calling on their life. The, the, the first uh, calling was, uh, it was their job to represent God. Think about young children when, when sometimes they, they, they ask this question, what does God look like? Well, a priest's vocation was to answer that question uh, because everybody knows that, that God is unseen. Therefore, it's a priest's vocation to show the world what the God is like. To be holy as God is holy. If we're going to show our world, if we're all priests and we're going to show our world what, what God is like, this is why Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2 both say that we are to be a holy nation. A nation? Do you know what it actually means that we're a nation? It means that the nation that we belong to right now is not the nation we live in. We live in the United States of America, but as Christians, we belong to another nation, to Christ and his kingdom. This is why, look at verse 11. Peter literally calls them foreigners in exiles. And this isn't because he's writing to a people who've been uprooted from their country. No, he's talking to you who have probably lived in the same town or village for generations. But see, here's what happens. When we give our lives to Christ, we change. Our lives change. Our thinking changes. What we value changes. What we live for changes. The path that we're walking changes. Our allegiances change. Our loves change. And in all of this, we are holy. Holy means to be set apart. We're distinct. We're so distinct that we're foreigners. We're no longer of this world. But as Jesus said, we are fully in this world. Which means as, as, as Christians, we don't run and hide from the world. We, we don't isolate ourselves from the world. We place ourselves in the heart of the world, especially in the chaos of our world. That's why Peter writes uh, a few verse later, he says, live such good lives among the pagans. Live among them. Live this goodness so that they can see it. And I think he's literally, he has Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount ringing in his ears when he, when, when he says that because Jesus said the same thing, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your heavenly Father. 
And what all this means, if you are a Christ follower, you're not an American. You're not a Republican. You're not a Democrat. You're a Christian. And you belong to a different nation, which is why Jesus said, seek first, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And see, when Christians actually start living into this, we actually start to be free from the kind of nation we actually reside. We stop needing the nation we live or its politics to be a certain thing. And all you have to do is, is, is look at Christians all over the world or you just read some church history and you'll see that Christ's kingdom has thrived under every form of government. That's why Peter can say what he says next. I didn't read it, but I'll read it now. Look at verse 13. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing you shall silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Don't be so affected. Be good citizens. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for e evil. Live as God's slave. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. <laughs> the emperor that he's talking about is Nero. It's the same emperor who, three to four years after Peter writes this, will put Peter on a cross. He will crucify Peter up, upside down. But Peter's free. He's not living for that king. He's not living for the kingdom of Rome. He is living for Christ and for Christ's kingdom. But more importantly, it, it, it's not just what we are aren't, but it's what we are. We, we are to be a holy nation, a nation of priests. Our vocation is one of holiness. That we are a people who more and more look like God. How do we show the world what God is like as priests? It's by becoming like him. And this is why in verses 11 to 12, Peter spells out this holiness a little bit more. He says, first, holiness is, is to abstain. It's to abstain from epithemia. Epithemia is something that we talked about earlier this summer. Uh, epithemia is all over the New Testament. Uh, it's those potent mega desires of our heart uh, that, that cause our hearts to turn anything into an idol. And I don't know about your heart, but I know my heart and this stuff uh, runs powerfully in my heart, where I can take anything. I mean, we, we can take anything, and then making that thing an idol, we become a slave to that thing, whether it's money, pleasure, sex, power, status, comfort, sports, beauty. I mean, that list goes on and on and on. And Peter says, holiness is abstaining. And holiness, secondly to Peter, is living 
such good lives. It's living such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds, though they may accuse you of doing wrong. On the day that God visits us, they will praise God. I want to think about what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, uh, church, go out and, and, and prove that the world is wrong and that you guys are right. He doesn't call the church to call out societal wrongs or, or to go on the attack or to make posts or to have yard signs, uh, to do social media. All he says is, church, you just need to live. Live out the good path that Christ has called us to walk. Just live. Now, people ask me this question more and more. Rod, as our world changes, how is the church to respond to this? I think this is Francis Schaeffer's question that he asked uh, already, what, 50 years ago. How then shall we live? Well, the first thing I say is... I. I believe this. I don't think our time is, is as unique as, as we think it is. I mean, all you have to do is, is read history to know that. In fact, our world is, is not much different than, than the world that Apostle Peter is writing in. It's, it's not that much different than Jesus' world. It's not that much different uh, than the early Christians' world. In fact, first century Rome, I think, was further along the road that we are now headed but I've been reading uh, these sociologists from Rodney Starks to Larry Hurtado to Tom Holland. And these guys are phenomenal historians. Uh, and, and they're writing about the early church and what the early church was about. And these eight things. Because I think it answers the question. Eight marks of the early church. In Roman culture, obsessed with entertainment, namely through blood sport. You know what I'm talking about, right? Gladiators and all that. Christians did not attend the games. Everybody knew that. Christians did not support Caesar's war of conquest and avoided participating in the military. Everybody knew that. In a culture that commonly disposed of infants... Again, because of Roman sexual practices, produced a lot of unwanted babies. Uh, a father, a Roman father, at any time, when the baby was born, the baby was presented to the father. If the father turned his back on the baby, that baby was brought to a garbage dump. Christians not only did not practice that, but they went to the garbage dumps to listen to the cries, and they adopted those little infants into their homes as sons and daughters. Everybody knew that about the church. In a culture that saw sexual appetite, activity, and exploitation as normal behavior, Christians abstained from sex outside of marriage and same-sex practices. Everybody knew that about the early church. Where Romans expected one to care for one's own family, Christians practiced radical, self-sacrificing hospitality for the poor and the suffering, regardless of culture or religion. Also in a world of rank where everyone had a price tag, and trust, trust me, everyone in, in the Roman culture knew the rank, uh, what, what their worth was. Um, 
and they were therefore treated accordingly. Christians just shattered all this. They valued everyone and treated everyone equally, irrespective of one's rank, gender, class, or race. And for this reason, as this was practiced in their gatherings, these gatherings were considered by Romans to be scandalous. In a polytheistic culture where the Romans had a God for everything, Christians believed that only Christ was the way to salvation. That was just unheard of in the Roman world. And in an honor-shame culture where vengeance was virtuous, to repay someone when they hurt you, you hurt them back. Christians were famous, not in a good way, but in a bad way, for forgiveness and reconciliation. And the early church was accused over and over again of doing wrong. They were canceled. They were persecuted because they didn't assimilate in the world around them. They were different. They were foreigners because they were living for a different king, seeking a different kingdom. And they lived into this vocation as priests where they declared the praises of God with every fiber of their being in every arena and avenue of life. And in so doing, they were putting God on display. And that second vocation of a priest, which I didn't talk about, Uh, which is to be an advocate, it's to be an intercessor, that where our world is in pain, where it's broken, priests are to be present, they're to be there in prayer, advocating, standing in the gap. And those Christians lived into this courageously. And our history books tell us (laughs) these early Christians changed their world. And they did it not by electing the right emperor or standing against Roman social ills or or being against their world in any way. They simply became a distinct nation, a holy nation, a nation of priests, a people, this beautiful family, this spiritual house where God lived and where God's glory was made manifest. A crossroads coming out of COVID, you know, we've talked a lot about replanting ourselves as a church just in light of all the, all the changes. And, and really the staff in the last several months uh, ha- have made this talk more of reality. We've been spending tons of time together. We've been taking an inventory of where we are as a church, where we're going, where, where we might have gotten off track. Uh, we've been asking those important questions that we like to ask. Who are we? Uh, as a church, and, and why do we exist? What are we doing here? Um, we used our vision and our mission and our values uh, to be the starting place in this process. Uh, in fact, first, we even just defined those words, vision, mission, and value, because so many people have uh, different meanings attached to those words. Um, so, so even just to be clear now, uh, I'll just say, the NFL begins today, okay? And if, if, if I'm coach of an NFL team, vision, what is vision? Well, if I'm a coach, our vision is to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> that's, why, that's why we exist as the Detroit Lions. Wow, that would be fun. <laughs> Amen. 
So, so vision, though, is what, is what you go for. Uh, mission lays out the kind of team that we need to be or become to, to, to make that a reality. And then values are the things that most matter to us because they are the things that will make us into a Super Bowl winner. Crossroads, our vision, the thing that we are going for as a church is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> if that's a bit of a mystery to you, that's okay. But this is what Jesus came. This is what he preached. This is what he brought. Uh, God's reign, his rule, breaking forth, breaking out to redeem, repair, restore a world that he loves. That's our vision. Our mission hasn't even changed. Just made it pithier. We're a biblical community where Jesus Christ transforms lives, renewing the city and the nation. That's what we want to be. Our values, the things that matter most to us, are these three things, worship, community, and mission. Now, those three things are nouns. So to make that into a verb, to make it active and proactive, worship is the passionate pursuit of God. Community is the passionate pursuit of each other. Mission is the pursuit of our neighbor and our nations. And we want a church where every single person is a worshiper, where they are declaring the praises of God, not just on Sunday mornings, but through their lives and their relationships and their vocation and their jobs. We want to we become a community where every person belongs to this community, where every stone in, in, in this house matters, where no stone is more or less important than another stone, and where we actually become this house that is welcoming and hospitable, where our arms are wide open, where people know that they can come here uh, and find refuge and mission. That we are all priests that we're all in this uh, vocation of becoming like God, to be holy as God is holy, so that we can show the world who God is and what God is like. And more than anything, you know what our world needs? It needs a church. It needs to, a church to be all that Christ intended for the church to be. And again, we're not talking about an organization. We're not talking about a club. We're not talking about a political party. We are talking about living stones who form this house, who are filled with the awesome glory and presence of God. Isaiah 64 says, Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and that the mountains would tremble before you. Do we want that? What's the catalyst for this? What's the thing that ignites this? What, what's the thing that, that detonates the, the, the power of God? Well, if you look at church history, every time in, in, in history when God is ignited, when God's glory comes down, it's when God's people have a deep experience of God and his grace. Martin Luther Charles Wesley, 
the Reformation, the Welsh Revivals, the Great Awakenings in the 1700s, South Korea after World War II, Pentecost even in Acts 2. These movements were ignited uh, by people who are cut to the heart, who are having this profound experience of, of God in his grace. And I want you to look at verse 10. Because this is a quote from Hosea 2, verse 23. And if you know Hosea 2, verse 23, or Hosea the book, you have to ask yourself, why is Peter quoting this verse in this place? It's because Peter wants us to know how it is that we actually become God's people. And it's not because of us. And if you know the story in Hosea, Hosea is this prophet who, who God instructs. He's, he says, Hosea, go and, and marry Gomer, the prostitute, Gomer. And make, make Gomer your segulai, your most treasured possession. And you have to ask yourself, why would God ask a prophet to do this kind of thing? He's doing it to, to create this powerful metaphor for Israel to, to show Israel who has now drifted so far from God, this is what you were, Israel, before I found you, but I took you, Israel, to be my bride, my most treasured possession. So Hosea goes out, he marries Gomer, but over time, Gomer misses her old life. She becomes grossly unfaithful. In fact, she starts having children. Uh, these children are not Hosea's because Hosea names one of them Lo-A-Me, which is not my people. That's not mine. Uh, he names another one, No Mercy. I'm not showing any more mercy. And she finally leaves Hosea for a pimp who sells her. And through this, God is showing Israel all that they have become. Israel, you have become grossly unfaithful. Therefore, you are low a me. You are not my people. But Gomer's unfaithfulness wasn't the last word. Because one day, as Gomer is being sold, being pimped, God says to Hosea, go love your wife again. Go buy her back. And Hosea writes, so I went and I found her and I bought her. I redeemed her and she became mine. And through all of this, God is saying, Israel, like Hosea, I'm going to woo you back. I'm going to even take you into the desert where we first became lovers. I'm going to betroth myself to you forever. And this all ends with Hosea 2, verse 23. I will show mercy to the one I called no mercy. And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And Peter puts this verse in here to let us know what we once were. We were once low a me, not mine, outside of God, with no hope. But God came down as a husband 
and he found us and he purchased us by going to the cross. He purchased us with his own blood. And this is how we went from not a people to being the people of God, the family of God, how we have been brought into his wonderful light. This is why Peter calls the light wonderful because it is And does this fill your heart with wonder that this is your God and this is what your God does and this is how much your God loves you in spite of us? And see, when we are cut to the heart in this way, this becomes the catalyst of God coming down of God's glory being shown and his power being unleashed. Crossroads. Who are we? What are we doing here? But you, Crossroads, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's segula, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light.